So I have a little brother. You, you guys may have heard about Robbie, um, Rotten Robbie. Robbie had a temper that, that was unparalleled, unmatched, uh, at least in my own lifetime. Um, he was just on the border of out there. He was out there. And, but we would play, and he was my younger brother, and so I would get him to do some pretty crazy things that really weren't... Now, I'm going to say age-appropriate, and your mind's going to go in the wrong direction. I'm bigger, and he's smaller. That's what I mean by age-appropriate. But, but I, could, I could get him to do all these things, and, and we would play really rough, at least for him. For me, you know, but for Robbie, it, it was rough. And my dad would warn us when, when our play would get too rough. And we'd argue, oh, we're fine. Nobody's going to get hurt. And he'd say, oh, it's all fun and games until what? Somebody gets hurt or somebody gets their eye poked out or, you know, you, you, all, know, you all knew that. And he was right. He was absolutely right. There's a razor-thin line between playing and not playing, right? Between playing and not playing. I was a middle school teacher. And as I had listened by my window, the playground was right outside my window, and I could tell when that razor-thin line was about to be crossed, right? Somebody would yell out, I ain't playing, right? Then you knew that razor-thin line was about to get crossed, or they would say something like, you play too much. It's like, oh, I would look out my window because something was about to happen. One person's still playing, but the other person has decided to stop playing, and they're not on the same page anymore, right? You play too much. For my dad, it was uh, maybe you had this when you were little, don't play games with me, boy. (laughs) Maybe don't play tricks with me. I don't know what your dad mine was. Don't play. You playing games with me? And when we want to blur that razor-thin line, right, we, we play it cool. We play hard to get. And we play possum, we play dead, we play the fool, right? Foul play. And when we want to crush the line, we, don't, we just want to make it disappear entirely. We want to dream big. Like even as kids, right, what would we do? We'd play act. Right? We'd play house. You'd be a doctor or a lawyer, and people like Fred actually went and did it, right? But we were just play-acting. We were pretending. We were, we were playing the game of what if. And it's an incredibly fun game. I play with the teens all the time, you know, and I would just throw out the second half of what if, right? You had money. What if you were broke? What if you had 20 brothers and sisters? What, you know, just, just fun. And the conversations that would ensue were, were just on the, on the border of kind of crazy, but they were so fun, too much fun. You can also crush somebody else's dreams using that word, right? Tell somebody that's child's play. Ah, that's child's play. Like, oh, thought I was onto something. <laughs> Which is all fun and games until somebody gets hurt, right? And somebody's got to go see the doctor. Play therapy. Because all work and no play made Jack a really, really dull boy, right? He's not only bored, but he's boring, right? Nobody wants to hang out with Jack. Because all Jack does is work, and all he talks about is work. So what does it mean to play our part in God's redemption plan for creation? And not merely a series of pointless cogs in the machine, insignificant parts, like Shakespeare, right? You remember his famous line, a dismal prophecy, all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players, and he's talking about just this, this treadmill that we can so easily get on, and it's just drudgery and monotony and endlessness. So as grown-up, mature adults, let's stop playing games, stop wasting time, 
And let's get serious. The message this morning, the wisdom in wasting time playing. Been very excited about this message because this is my life. Right? This, is, this is my life. I mean, I really try to preach this to people. Very few people buy it. <laughs> but I, I still try. I still try. Tragically, in our society, play is usually seen as something only for kids and dogs. Right? Cats, no. Cats don't play. They tell you how to play. <laughs> right? Cats, I don't know why. Anyway. Adults exercise, but they don't play. I don't know if you've noticed that. I'm going to go exercise. And that razor-thin line between playing and not playing as you get older, apparently that razor-thin line becomes a flashing neon sign, right, that everyone around you is screaming at you. You've, you've crossed that line, right? You shouldn't be playing anymore. You're an adult now. Stop playing around with your life. I got that a lot. You know, as a 52-year-old, I was still a youth pastor. And people would say to me, when are you going to pull up your big boy underpants and be a senior pastor? Like, stop playing around. You, you need to get serious and take this position. And, and, I, and I, it, would, it would upset me. It would really upset me because I felt that God had called me to that position, to that task. And until he called me to do something else, that's my task until I die. We need to stop looking at somebody else's task or the whole task that we hope he's going to give us. What's the last thing he asked you to do? Lean into that 100%. And that's what I was doing as a youth pastor, and apparently God decided, okay, now it's time to, time to grow up and be a senior pastor. I try. I try. And now it's like, what were you doing on that skateboard? <laughs> stop yelling at me. Can I just tell you, though, that time with my sister's grandsons, that was priceless. I know I'm, I'm still limping, but somewhere, somewhere, someone once wrote this about Christians who this person felt were, were just so cold and serious, right? He writes this, people who have a deep foreboding fear that somebody somewhere might be having a good time. And I, I can't remember who said that, didn't write it down. Um, but he said that that's, that's Christians. He, he pointed at Christians and said, some of you Christians, are, you're, you're this, right? You're this. Philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he once observed that Christians have no joy. And should he ever come to believe in God, he would only believe in a God who danced. He, in another, another book, he wrote this, no one in my parents' church ever had fun. So my goal this morning is to explore this distinct possibility that our God is a, is a playful God. Right? And that play should be the key marker, the, the key identifying feature of the Christian life, of the, of, the, of the Christian, right? Mature Christians. And that we should be concerned, if not brokenhearted, if we ever discover that somebody somewhere, somebody somewhere might not be having a good time. That should concern us. That should concern us. Theologian Robert Hopkins insists, Christians ought to be celebrating constantly, we ought to be preoccupied with parties and banquets and feasts and merriment. We ought to give ourselves over to veritable orgies of joy because of our belief in the resurrection. We ought to attract people to our faith quite literally by the fun there is in being a Christian, right? We should be the party givers of the city, right? We have more to look forward to than anybody. I'm sorry, a birthday, another year getting older? Eh. But heaven with our Savior? <laughs> That's huge. Now, before we go on, we got to agree on some terminology. What do I mean by play? Right? So here's my definition. This is kind of a, an aggregation of several different 
people, play is to engage in acts that are purposeless. Now, this is super, super important, but meaningful, right? It's purposeless, but meaningful. To engage or to engage in acts that are ends in themselves or that have no strict purpose, right? Make sense? Play is done for its own sake as opposed to um, acts that are done as a means to an end, right? You, some of you will exercise. Why? Not for the sheer joy of exercise, and I can almost promise you you're exercising so that your heart will get healthy. So it's not really fun. It's like you're, you have to make yourself do it in order to have a healthy heart, right? That, that's not fun. I don't like to exercise, right? I'll exercise if it involves me playing. Well, I'll exercise all day long until, I'm, I, and until I can't walk, but I don't exercise very well. You know, ask my wife. I, I, I don't know what my problem is. Purposeful acts are determined and measured by the aims, the ends aimed at, right, was the purpose achieved by the act. But play, there's no judgment. There's no, it's basically, did I have a good time? Right? Play is fundamentally different than purposeful acts. Even if it has consequences beyond itself, play is not purposeful. It's not measured by any external end result or product. Imagine a toddler, and it's not that hard for me. My two little granddaughters, three and five, they do this all day long. They're running around our house growling and roaring like a lion or a cat or a dog barking. It's one of the two, like constant. Okay, we need to do something. All they can think to do is growl or bark. Right? And, and, and you ask them, you know, what are you doing? What is your purpose, child, in this crazy thing that you're doing? And, and then you realize your question is absolutely absurd, right? Because her purpose is precisely to run around roaring like a lion. Her means are identical to her end, right? She's got no purpose in running around to be, she's not practicing to be a lion. She's just having fun being a lion. There's no other reason to be a lion. And if we accept this basic sense of play, we begin to see that, that playing games is much broader than we think. It's not just like Wednesday night when we played board games. It, we can't confine it to just that, right? This, this definition of play is much, much, broader, much broader than that. And what's really amazing is once you begin looking for play is that even if we can't distinguish between play and non-play, right, that razor-thin line, maybe it's been blurred so much that we can't distinguish between play and non-play, but what we discover is that play or, or its material social residue is what we call culture, right? It's, it's culture. Play and culture go hand in hand, right? Virtually nothing in our human existence can be totally reduced to utilitarian purpose, nothing, right? Look around you. Just, just for a moment, look around you. The room you're sitting in, the pew you're sitting on, the clothes you're wearing, Right? All of it likely involved at least some interest, at least some interest in being attractive. Perhaps it even includes certain unproductive, totally superfluous embellishments. That's play. We are surrounded by play. Play permeates everything we do as human beings. Even the basic necessities of life. You think, no, we don't play there. Yeah, we do. Food. What do we do? We, we play with our recipes. We play with our spices. We, we play with different tastes. We, we play. What do we do with our homes? That's the most basic necessity, a roof over our heads. What do we do? We've been doing it since the cave days. What? We put pictures on the wall, right? We, we play. We... Little in life is completely utilitarian. Attractiveness, ornamentation, pleasure, and delight, these are the signatures of play, 
of wasteful purposelessness that makes our lives so oddly rich and full and amazing, right? This purposeless, pointless stuff, and yet we get so much joy out of them. So much joy. There are people that think, well, play, you know, has a purpose. It, it's a purpose. They're, you know, when play, you, you know, blah, 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 and, and, but that doesn't, doesn't work that way. Once, you, once it becomes a duty, it, it's, no longer, it's no longer play. And so, again, why all the pushback from the church world against wasting time, right? If play is everywhere and everyone plays, I think a lot of people just hate to admit it, right? Several early church fathers, including Augustine, preached that against any kind of fun or frivolity in the Christian life, right? It's the old life. You know, fun and games, that's part of the old life that gets buried, gets crucified, right? Conversion to Christianity, said, meant a conversion from life, from a life of play, to a life of seriousness. Augustine, he missed the boat on a few things. In one of the most famous history books ever written, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon accused the medieval church of what's called angelism. He writes this, vainly aspiring to imitate the perfection of the angels, they, our, our Christian predecessors, disdained or they affected to disdain, they pretended or they thought, whatever, earthly every earthly and corporal delight, right? They, they look down their nose at, they like, no, no, this is bad. Another more modern theologian, I'm not going to mention his name because everyone will flip out. He added this thought as he described two dogs that ran out onto a football field one afternoon on national television and did what dogs do. Now, wherever your mind went, because it could have gone several different places, I'm not even going to go any of those places, but wherever your mind went, the point remains the same, right? I'm not going to stand up here and, and, and preach that we should be angels, but I'm also not going to stand up here and say that we're animals or dogs, right? We're not angels and we're not animals. We're kind of something, something, something in between. So again, I'm not advocating, advocating any kind of debauchery or hedonistic alternative, right, to biblical morality. Um, my point is simply that we're not angels, but we're not animals either. The church has sent very mixed messages, right? At, at some point, they, it seems to be say you got to be angels, and at other point, churches say just be free, do whatever feels right in the moment, right? <laughs> be dogs. Like, ah. Two extremes. I, I don't know if the truth lies at those those extremes, but the church has sent very very mixed messages. A book written by Tim Hansen: When I relax, I feel guilty. He's a Christian. The book says a lot. The title says nearly everything. And he's, he's wrestling with this. I know my wife listens to some TV preacher, Joyce Myers. And Joyce Myers' suggestion is to buy the shoes. Is that what it is? <laughs> buy the shoes. I don't remember the rest of it. Eat the cookie. Buy the shoes and eat the cookie. So you can have the joy of salvation, but you've got to be very careful expressing it. When I was growing up, right, in God's house, you weren't allowed to have fun. I mean, that was my perception. Don't run. Don't laugh. Right? You don't do that in God's house. And my thought I arrived at is I got two granddads, and God was like mm, the granddad I didn't like, <laughs> the grumpy one. It's like, God's grumpy. <laughs> right? Why can't we play? Why, why? And yet the Psalms tell me to enter his courts with loud shouts of thanksgiving and praise. <laughs> the problem with these perspectives on play is that they really don't line up. They don't agree with what we see and experience in nature and creation that God created for us and what we see in God himself. 
The universal fact is that children are natural-born players, right? We see this. It's all, they, they come over to our house. We want to play. What do you want to play? We don't know. We want to play. They don't really care. All they want to, they just want to play, right? Name a game, they'll play it, right? This observation in and of itself establishes the idea that play is an indelible characteristic of human beings, which persists way, way, way past childhood, although in different forms, right? Some fear that if children play as children, they will also play as adults. But psychiatrists have been telling us for years now the reverse is undoubtedly wiser. If children don't play as adults, then they won't be able to play as adults. If children don't play as children, they won't be able to play as adults. Right, we watch animals. I don't know how you watch those animal, baby animals. They are hilarious. I do not like cats, but I really fell in love with kittens one summer. Spent a summer with my cousins. They were all sick, so I spent <laughs> a week hanging out in the garage with the kittens. They were so fun. Then they became cats, and I really didn't want to have anything to do with them. They weren't fun anymore. The kittens, they were so, they were so fun. It's no wonder then the place seems so out of bounds for so many believers. So here's the important. What's so important about all of this genuine and spontaneous sense of play that we see and experience in our lives, in ourselves, in the world around us? Surely the animals tell us something about the playfulness of God who made them and about ourselves because we've been made in his image. Right? We look at children and we look at the animal world, we look at the natural world, and we just conclude, right, where did all this silliness come from? It had to come from the Creator. Psalm 19 says this, that the heavens tell the glory of God and show forth His handiwork. And if this is true, then so should the crazy array of animals and we people, right, display His handiwork also. And if God is a playful God, then we should be displaying playfulness We should be reflecting God himself. We play because we have been created in the image of a playful God, and creation mirrors his playfulness. Listen to this. This is Psalm 98, starting in verse 4. Shout for the Lord. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp. With the harp and the sounds of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and let everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth in righteousness and the people's inequity. That last phrase kind of seems kind of harsh at the very end, and basically the, the psalm writer is saying, when, when Christ returns, everything will be made right, right? Everything will be made, that, that's the judgment. Everything will be made right. So in addition to play being rooted in the very fabric and the nature of all of creation, right, natural theology, we also see that although we don't find any thou shalt play in Scripture, like when I knew this was going to be what I was preaching on, I, I, I knew it. But I started flipping through anywhere. Where's the thou shalt play passage that I'm going to preach from? So that, that I couldn't find it. It wasn't there. Um, although we don't find that passage, we do discover that play is like interwoven into several biblical themes as well. The first is, is the, the, the character of God himself, right? The first thing we see 
When attempting to describe the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Greeks looked at this relationship and what the only, the word that they came up with to describe that relationship was the perichoresis, right? The, the dance in the round, right? And, and, and you get a whole bunch of people and it was a Greek dance and, and, and you had to concentrate on the dance, right? Anything else you were thinking about had to be let go because you, you had to be, because you would move from partner to partner to partner. And as they watched this, watched people interacting and laughing and smiling, they said, that's the Trinity, Right? That's their relationship, and that's what our relationship should look like, this, this, this barn dance right? in the, in the old days where everybody comes out and, and, and everybody's just laughing and no alcohol served, you know, whatever. All right, so. When we play, we honor and imitate God's very nature and actually participate in the Trinitarian life. We join the dance. When the Holy Spirit fills our lives, we join that perichoresis. We join that, that happy, joy-filled life of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Play is a celebration of that life lived to its fullest. Dr. Gorman writes this. If we believe that creation and life are, in a sense, God's playground to us, just think about that for a moment. I love this line. We'll see and respond to God much differently than if we take life too seriously. Right? I got to thinking about Adam and God, and I, I just, I wonder, you know, I wonder were any funny exchanges, and, and I started in Genesis, and immediately I, I had funny exchange. God says, hey, Adam, name the animals. I mean, you think about that for a moment. God probably could have come up with some really, really appropriate names, but he's basically saying, Adam, go play with some words. Just, just play. And my guess is God's sitting back just laughing, right? Is really, is that what you're going to name that thing? Oh, all right. All right. I'll, I'll go with that. And, and, and he's, he's Adam. He said, Adam, just have some fun with this, right? Look around. Play with creation. Start categorizing. Have fun. So we also... We honor and we imitate God um, by enjoying his gift to us, right? Our lives in his good creation, right? Super important to understand now. This, this is crucial here. God didn't create earth or us out of necessity. Can you understand what I'm saying? We are the playful result of God, of the, the Godhead, the triune God. I picture sitting around what if we did this? How fun would that be? No, no, no purpose in mind, no end product in mind necessarily, but how fun would it be to create this incredible place and to people it? Like my daughters do that all day long. They'll come and they'll spend all day long setting up this incredible city, and then they'll bring in the Barbie dolls, and, you know, and then and they'll, they'll just have such fun playing in their creation. And I, and I picture God doing the same thing. He's like, this is so fun. This is so fun. We are not a means to an end. He didn't need us. There's no need on God's part for which we were the solution or the remedy. In fact, many feel that creation, again, was the result of the Godhead simply wondering, right, daydreaming. They were daydreaming, really, playfully. I wonder what would happen if we did, if we did this, right? What if? Therefore, the world isn't an object of purpose or necessity for God. It's exclusively the object of gratuitous love. We're here simply because he loves, not because he wanted something from us. 
He just loves. It, it, it flows out of his very being. In other words, creation as a whole is because of divine plane, and this plane is one of love. And our own plane and our own refusal to reduce our acts to strict biological or utilitarian purposes, to actually waste time and energy in fun and games, is a sign of being made in the image and likeness of God. When we play, the world looks at us and thinks, I wonder if God's like that. And when we're all cold and serious, I think the world looks at us and thinks, oh, man, I wonder if God's like that. They do. They don't know. Right? We're the witnesses. The great temptation is to reduce acts and things to the status of means. Right? In a sense, the Western world, we've really highlighted, right, method and use and purpose and means, and we've kind of neglected meaning, inherent value, right, dignity. And if we're only capable of thinking in terms of use and purpose, we'll be incapable of thinking about those realities that we can't put to our purpose, right? The mystery of God, the presence of the divine, right? If we can't decide, well, why is he here? Then we don't place any value in it. If we decide that he's only here for a purpose and not simply because we love being with us and he loves being with us and we love being with him, We end, up, we end up looking at creation. We end up looking at people. And if they don't serve a purpose, because that's the way we've ordered our world, then they're expendable. People are expendable. Parts of his creation are expendable because we've decided that we can't find a purpose. And God's saying, there wasn't a purpose. It was just to have fun. It was just for your enjoyment. To understand play is to understand both God and his creation. And this is why play is the cornerstone of the Sabbath principle. <laughs> it saturates the very nature of Jewish worship, and it's the key ingredient to all the festivals that God commanded. Right? The Sabbath sets a limit to work, grants us, grants us not only the opportunity, but the obligation to rest and to play. Right? Play over, resets our over-seriousness toward life, right? allowing us to just be filled with the spirit of joy and happiness, delight that affects everything that we do. Additionally, Jewish worship and all the festivals saturated with play and joy, the musical instruments, the shouts of joy, the dancing were all essential parts of it. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for dance is, take a wild guess, Hebrew word for dance is, is play, same word. When you dance, you, you play. When you play, you, you dance. And the festivals were simply, again, God-ordained barn dances for an incredibly stiff-necked people, right? We see that phrase throughout the Bible. The Israelites were just stiff-necked, stubborn. We'll do it ourselves. Probably the best evidence of the playfulness of God is the doctrine of Jesus, right? Play is incarnational. If Jesus embodied the full range of human emotions, then you've got to assume that he also enjoyed play. I bet you he was a good joker. I, I think he had a great sense of humor, just like any other human being, he most assuredly enjoyed a good laugh, which for me explains why everybody wanted to hang out with him and why nobody wanted to hang out with the Pharisees, right? Jesus would literally tell you, you're not good, but he would say it, I don't know, in such a way that they would go, yeah, you're right, boy, I love you. <laughs> he, he, just, he wasn't mean-spirited about it, but he was just lovingly honest. 
It was amazing. Crowds loved him. But again, that, all that's just conjecture. There's no real, real proof. But I think the proof is in his teaching methods, right, his parables. You ever notice when you read his parables, more often than not, the attention gets drawn to the Pharisees. And what are the Pharisees after all the parables? More often than not, they're, they're upset and they're angry because they, they saw through the story. But you know what? I, I, and I don't know why they never show the crowd's reaction. My guess is the crowd reaction is going, oh, oh, he told them. I'll bet you the crowd was loving it. I bet you that's why they followed him. Like, let's follow Jesus today. He's going to get that one politician. He's going to make him look so silly. And he will not be able to do anything about it because Jesus is so, oh, we've got we to follow him. This is the traveling road show. Follow Jesus and watch him make fools of the religious authorities. Right? The crowds were probably just, they were loving it. They were loving it. Watching their betters, supposed betters, look silly. Fact of the matter is, human and story are essential for getting truths past people's radars, past their defenses. Um, they're called affective barriers. Learned this as a school teacher. Uh, kids come into the classroom and they've got issues, right? I expect them to come in ready to learn and they come in with fears, anxieties, frustrations. A friend on their, their best friend just yelled at them. Their, their dad screamed at them before they left the house. I mean, they're, and now you expect them to just, oh, I'm ready, fill me with information, right? No, right? You got to get them ready to learn, and what I learned as a pastor is if I could get them to laugh, if I could just get them to laugh, right, the, the affective barriers would, would lower just a little bit, right, because they got involved in, in, in the joke and they kind of temporarily forgot their issues. And then all the, the feel-good endorphins kicked in because of the laughter and then and they, all those endorphins made them a little bit more talkative than they were. All their inhibitions and their hesitations kind of melt when they start laughing. And I think Jesus knew this. One psychologist calls it flow, F-L-O-W. You get so in the moment of a game, maybe you recognize this, either watching a game, playing a game, you get so in the moment that you simply don't have the brain capacity or the time or the energy to think about all your problems, right? They, they just, they melt away. They melt away as you get into the flow of the game, Right? That's what I found out again, teams and games, right? While playing the game, they literally, whatever they walked into that youth room with, the frustrations, the fears, and the anxieties, once they started playing the game, if they would allow themselves to play the game, they, bec they became a participant. They, it, it just, all of their fears just kind of melted. Laughter and games, right? Incredibly, incredibly powerful. And I think this was Jesus with his parables, right? It was his way of Slipping the truth in around the back door. Charles Schultz, I love Charles Schultz. Anybody love Peanuts? Oh, love him. And I, I can't remember, I looked for the, 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 the quote, but he, he basically said along the lines of, nearly every one of my comic strips was a gospel message. Nearly every single one of them. But by putting it, my message in the words of my characters and, in, 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 and in, a, in a fun scene, I can slyly preach to people without sounding preachy. It's kind of what Jesus was doing, I think, slyly getting around people's defenses. And before they knew it, the truth had already got home, right? They didn't have time to go, nope, don't want to hear it. It already hit. Now they're not going to forget it. He slipped it in like slyly with, with this humor and this, the power of story, right? Perhaps the greatest indication of Jesus' thoughts on extravagantly wasting time and money is his encounters with several different women, in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, it says this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. 
She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. And in this interaction, Martha is, is hard at work, right? And Mary decides to waste time, right, in, in, in Martha's opinion, um, just chit-chatting with Jesus, right? There's work to be done, and Martha's like playing around, right? She's playing around. So Martha mentions this to Jesus, verse 40. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I would feel so uncomfortable if I was a guest in that home. I wouldn't even know what to say. <laughs> but Jesus understands the value of wasting time playing. Right? He understands what Mary, what, what's going on with Mary. Without undervaluing Martha, he sets us straight as to what truly could have been a waste of time. Jesus replies, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about so many things, but few things are needed, and indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So again, I don't get the impression that Mary decided that she needed a sermon that afternoon. It's not like she decided, hey, if I do this, I'm going to get this result. I think she literally decided, oh, it would be awesome today to just sit with Jesus. I got no agenda. I got no purpose. I don't think he's going to like me any more than he did yesterday. I, I just want to hang out with him. I feel good when I hang out with him. I just, I just feel good. I just want to hang out with him. So I get the impression that Mary's means and the end goal are the, the same thing. She just wants to hang out with Jesus. Nothing else compares the Apostle John records a similar incident at the home of Martha and Mary at a different time. This is in chapter 12 of John. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, again, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with his, her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. John has this weird habit. He throw these lines, they feel like throwaway lines, but that line is screaming something, right? The whole house. Because of this act of extravagant love, the whole house was filled with love. It affected everything. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to dip in and help himself to it. Verses 7 and 8, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. In other words, there's a time and place for wasting time and being productive, but it's also okay and quite beautiful to waste time being unproductive just spending the afternoon wasting time with your, your spouse, doing nothing. At the end of the day, you say, wow, that was a fun day. Your, your spirits lifted. I love spending the day off just doing silly things with Diane. Let's go to Costco. Woohoo! Date night. <laughs> the senior buffet is gone, but... A similar but different account can be found in Matthew and Mark... And then a third different account can be found in Luke chapter 7. In all three cases, a different teaching is attached. Sometimes it's forgiveness. Sometimes it's a focus on his, his identity as, as the anointed one. I mean, it's like 
It's like in each one of these situations where somebody does something extravagantly wasteful. He looks around and says, well, I can use this. This is beautiful. He never denies it, right? Never tells her, no, this is, this is, this is wasteful, right? Never rejected, never ridiculed by Jesus. Always applauded, always applauded. Wasteful spending, wasteful time. Jesus always applauds. For whatever reason, Jesus found at hand, right? Extravagant wastes of time and money seem to be the triggers of God's glory, right? When people are being stingy and purposeful, God's glory does not shine very brightly, I feel. I don't know about you. But when somebody does something so over the top, a gift that's so inappropriate, right? Everybody in the room just like, wow, I wish I had given that. I wish that was me. I wish I could have been that loving. That was amazing. That was, that was amazing. In fact, um, extravagant play appears to be in our future. I, I know a lot of us, we kind of, we, we draw this line between heavenly joy and earthly happiness like, like somehow. But I, I, I want to show you something in Revelation that tells me that play is not bad. In fact, when Christ returns, all of this work that we've been doing, it's going to end. All we'll do is play in his presence. So again, those of you who are poo-pooing play, stop it. Right? This is what we were created for. Listen to this. This is amazing. Revelation chapter 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new, right? Listen very carefully. Play foreshadows our future. It foreshadows that joy when all things will be made new, where all manner of drudgery and, and disease and decay and death will be left behind, right? Play is not useless activity. It's not time out from work, and it's not even rest time either. When we play, we are kingdom foreshadowing. We are showing people what the kingdom of God is going to be like. There will be no drudgery. There will be no nine to five. There will no be, I can't wait till I get off work, right? There will not be, I can't wait till this time because the moment will be so rich. No needs. Kingdom foreshadowing, it's a momentary escape into the future reality that God intended for all of us. This huge playground to enjoy. Dan and I were talking. We kind of decided that right now we are managing, we're managing decay as human beings. But when Christ comes, we're going to be managing growth, explosive growth no longer managing the downfall, right? We're going to be managing that, a momentary escape into the future reality that God intended for all of us. Closing thought related to the idea of flow. I'm going to quote here. The player 
is wholly absorbed in his game and takes it seriously, yet at the same time he transcends himself and his game. For it is, after all, only a game. So he is realizing his freedom without losing it. He steps outside of himself without selling himself. You get that idea, right? You get into that, the, the game and you vicariously experience things that you don't really personally have to pay for, right? You win the game of life and you're a millionaire, right? You wake up in the morning, I guarantee you, you're not a millionaire, right? It just doesn't work that way. In a similar manner, the call to become like little children opens the kingdom of God really to a game of, of what if for us. Essentially, the kingdom of God possesses, it possesses this as if, what if quality of games. For God creates and invites his people into a new world reality that operates according to its own rules and its own logic. Right? He's calling us to play a separate game, you can call it game, than what the world is playing the world doesn't see this. So, but here's the crazy different thing about this game that we're playing. We, when the player ends, he goes back into real time. All his, it all, he only momentarily escaped during the game. See, but Christ is asking us to play this what-if game 24-7. Play as if it's real. It's not a game. And he's calling us to play this game loudly, right, and playfully, and invitingly and joyfully because this is what our future is going to be like. So he's calling us, play the game in your prayers. I want to challenge you this morning. In your prayers, play, the, play what if with God. Just play. What if? What if, God? What if, what if I did this? Right? What if, what, if, what if I did this? In all of your spiritual disciplines, Play the what-if game. just want to challenge you. What if? Have, have some fun with the Holy Spirit. And if you're wondering how to play the game, it's very simple. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You bow your heads, Father. Thank you so much for offering us an alternative to what the world is playing. Father, there's an alternate reality. The world doesn't recognize it, but we do. And when we play the game right, people want to join in. And they have so much fun in this game, but they don't want to stop. And so, Father, that's what you promised us. The game, it doesn't have to stop. So, Father, give us... Give us courage to share this kind of a message to our neighbors. Thank you, Father, for offering us a, a better way to live, a way to live that's filled with joy and happiness, both now and in anticipation of the future. Right? It just never stops. Father, thank you for all these things, for all these things that you thought out And you offer no strings attached. Thank you, Father, for being our Savior. 
your son's name I pray. Amen.